Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two guests today. In moments, Leslie Salzinger will gender homo economicus for us. And at the bottom of the hour, Forrest Hilton will give us an overview of all the political turmoil in Latin America, from the right-wing coup in Bolivia to the anti-neoliberal upsurges in Chile and Colombia. Fordham University Press is just out with Mutant Neoliberalism, Market Rule and Political Rupture, a collection of essays edited by William Callison and Zachary Manfredi. It's a perspective on where neoliberalism is a decade after the financial crisis that was at first taken to be its death blow. But the beast lives on. A few weeks ago, I had one of the contributors, Quinn Slobodian, on to talk about neoliberal opposition to the EU. And now here's Leslie Salzinger to talk about her essay in the volume, Sexing Homo Economicus, Finding Masculinity at Work. She's an associate professor and vice chair of research in gender and women's studies at Berkeley. Leslie Salzinger. Homo Economicus is an ancient concept, uh, but it's acquired some new salience in the neoliberal era. So first of all, what do we mean by the concept of Homo Economicus? What kind of character is he? And he's usually a he. So when people talk about Homo Economicus, they, I mean, this sort of classic idea of economic man is this notion that you are this purely rational subject who is capable of seeing things in a way that is devoid of anything except one's pure personal self-interest. So there's no emotional muddying of the waters. You're not concerned about taking care of other people. You don't have to fuss with morals or ethics, but instead you do what is best for yourself. And the sort of the concept of the of the, it's the way that is then embedded in capitalism and then more recently in neoliberalism in particular is this concept that if everybody is simply following their own self-interest in a very straightforward way, that the market will then do the work of coordinating things so that everything works out best for all. But the homo economicus itself is this space of pure rationality. And although um, it's not embedded in the definition, that homo economicus is usually gendered as a male, correct? Well, people always say he. And part of what I've been interested in in this essay and in my work in general is calling the question of whether that is simply a grammatical convention or a speech con linguistic convention or whether it's meaningful. And what I argue in this essay and in other places as well is that indeed homo economicus, when people say he, that's actually what they mean. And the reason that's what we mean is because we do have a set of cultural understandings in the West, really going back to the, really to the beginning of capitalism, maybe earlier, but I don't know, which associates men with this sort of disinterested form of rationality, as opposed to women who are then the, those who care for other people and who carry the sort of emotional valence culturally. And so that matches nicely with homo economicus. And part of what I argue here is that although people act as if it's possible to think of homo economicus separate from gender, that it's, that it's always fundamentally a gendered category. Melinda Cooper uh, has done some interesting work on how that kind of uh, ideal of the neoliberal model, this, this rational calculating man, always depends upon um, some kind of patriarchal family uh, for uh, social support for the children and also for the broader society, right? This is a, it's a package, this, this manly homo economicus and the um, less spoken of patriarchal family that supports him. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Cooper has talked about this and actually other people have as well, although I, I, I love the way she does it. But I do think in, in general, there's a lot of work on partially from people not starting around capitalism, but starting around care work, who point out that the reason that the fact of this supposed separation between public and private, where you can kind of push all the work of care and emotion off to the side then makes it possible for us to pretend that the world of production and of finance, the world of the kind of public sphere is this unemotional sphere that you actually need to have somebody to take care of the world of care, of caring for, for children, for sick people, for our own emotional and physical needs. And the only way that one can sort of march around being an economically rational man is if somebody else is picking up the pieces behind the scenes. Of course, that Sheryl Sandberg uh, hires women, of course, the lean-in feminist models to hire women uh, to do those sorts of more traditional uh, familial roles. 
Of course, in the contemporary period where we see more and more women of every race and class background entering the workforce or continuing to be in the workforce, that is dependent on the commodification in many, many ways of the kind of work that I was just talking about. So people hire, I mean, people like Sheryl Sandberg hire private care. Um, I would imagine in her case, and certainly empirically, mostly women of color in the U.S., but poor women are also hiring somebody to take care of their kids because you can't leave a two-year-old alone and everybody's working because you don't really have the option not to. Yeah, whoever takes care of Sheryl Sandberg's kids, uh, somebody's taking care of that person's kids. <laughs> yes, exactly. And there's a lot of work on the care chain, right, about how this is actually at this point an international um, structure as well as, a, as well as a national one. And I guess the one other thing I would say about that is it is a race and class structure always as well as gendered and talking about them separately doesn't really make sense. It is also the case that even in families where a lot of the physical and emotional care work is farmed out to and paid to um, other women, that there's a lot of evidence that even today in heteronormative households where women are working, that frequently women are doing what, what some people call the worry work of the household, the sort of schedule keeping and figuring out where everybody is and coordination work. Um, so that we, even in these very elite households, we, you frequently do find gender differences around who takes care of certain kinds of emotional things. Yeah, I don't know what the practice is in the Bay Area, but in New York, uh, the favorite woman for this sort of care work is a Caribbean woman. Mm -hmm. It's really, it's it's, it's quite an uh, ethnic division of labor in, in, in this kind of uh, business. Every place in the country has its own. There's a wonderful, very early essay by Evelyn Nicano Glenn, where she looks at this historically, and she, the period that she's talking about, she says, you know, in the, in California, it was... It was Asian, mostly Japanese. This is a slightly earlier period. In the Southwest, you get um, Latinas. And in New York, you get, and, and in the South, you get um, African-American women. Those have shifted. So, for instance, in New York, now it's Caribbean. Out here, it's mostly um, Mexican and Central American women who end up doing that, that labor. But it is always a racialized form. And actually, if you talk to some of the p women who do the hiring, since, of course, women are doing the hiring, not men, um, the sort of racialized rhetorics around this are really incredible. You know, these, whichever group it happens to be is naturally more nurturing and really unbelievable. But of course, uh, th these are the invisibilized people who make economic man possible. Yes, yes. The structure of heteronormative families that says you've got private over here with somebody taking care of all the feelings and all the actual work of caring for people, and that that is totally separate from somebody else who can go to work and not think about that at all, that that fundamental structure is what enables capitalism to work at its base. And under neoliberalism, those boundaries have been increasingly blurred as more and more care work is commodified, which is what we were just talking about, so that you see the kind of incredible racial and class slippage through those things. But you continue to get this production and reproduction of a binary that makes the whole thing work. In your essay, you look at uh, economic man from three axes. We've just been speaking of the first. But the second is you spent a lot of time looking at uh, a foreign exchange trading desk, uh, or two, actually, one in New York and one in Mexico City. That is a really manly world, right? It is a really manly world. What did you see? There are many stereotypes of what finance, financial markets look like, um, and they are, I think, mostly true in that they tend to be, you know, people, the men who trade, and this is true, I, I was in both Mexico City and in New York, the the norms were very similar. Um, you know, people break phones and they curse and they play horrible jokes on each other. And now, Were these Mexican men or American men in, in Mexico City? In Mexico City, they are Mexican. They were Mexican, the ones I saw. And in New York, they were mostly Mexican, but not only. I spent a little time actually on a kind of a regular um, Euro trading desk. And those were, in that period, mostly white guys from Queens. So, like, not super highly educated, actually, whereas the Mexicans were very elite because um, I was in this very high-end bank. So, uh, sort of like we were talking about with care work, 
these things are all very racialized in very kind of minute ways. But it was striking to me that the performance of over-the-top, almost farcical masculinity was actually quite similar across all three. So what was that like? What, what kind of masculinity are we talking about? For instance, if somebody's trying to get somebody else to make a deal with them and they don't want to make it, they might start hassling them about what kind of man are you and don't you know how to take a risk and can't you, you know, work this out? You know, what what's can't you step up? That kind of thing. Um, there's a certain kind of use of tropes of masculinity to get things to happen. Um, there's a kind of performance of status in the market, which sounds trivial, but it isn't trivial. Your status, your reputation is everything in, in these markets. If people don't think that you're going to actually close on a deal that they won't trade with you. So it really matters. And people perform that in a very high amp kind of way. And one thing that was very striking to me was actually in Mexico City, there was one woman who, who was a trader when I was there, who was known as being a very good trader. They always did this thing about how she was cold as ice. That was her their way of kind of handling her difference. But she eventually quit. And she quit because she was trying to get pregnant. And her doctor told her, that the job was making it impossible. And so she quit her job. And everybody thought, well, that just made tons of sense. And I just thought that was such a bizarre uh, sort of, I mean, you could just see the sort of gendered structuring being so deeply embedded in the work itself that she couldn't stay. They uh, insult or abuse a bad trader by uh, saying he's a, he's a girl, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the I don't know what I'm allowed to say online, but I mean, people are just like, People are extremely foul-mouthed, and every every insult is an insult about masculinity, often very, very sexual. And I guess I would say that, you know, there are many people who have written about this. One of the things that's weird is that in the field, in the academic world, people sort of act like this is fluff, and the real thing is the sort of underlying market. And part of my argument is that the this actual performance of masculinity is part of how it works. So I, I wouldn't say that it has to work that way. You could imagine it might be able to work differently. But empirically, that is how it works now. I'm speaking of Leslie Salzinger, a sociologist and professor of gender studies at Berkeley. People act as if markets are just numbers on a screen, but they are social institutions. So how could they not? these things not uh, matter a lot? Of course. And so it's not that you couldn't have a profit motive without men. I think you certainly could. But that's not how it looks. I mean, in fact, those things are connected now. And I think one of the things that's really important in thinking about neoliberalism, to get back to the sort of larger theme of the essay in some ways, is that I don't really think it makes sense to act as if neoliberalism is some kind of abstract thing that hangs out out there. It, it, it's something that's enacted in real life. And we live in a highly gendered world and capitalism emerges within that structure. So that to pretend that we can talk about those things separately is to misdescribe what's actually happening. Well, and it seems like a foreign exchange uh, desk is almost like the market stripped to its purest form. It's just pure market relations with you know, no commodity underlying it. It's just uh, money making money, money seeking money. Exactly. And nobody's running things, right? There's no... It's not like the stock exchange where somebody is like setting the rules out and you can go complain to them if something goes wrong because the market, I mean, it, it's not that there are tons of rules because every single one of these people is sitting somewhere in a bank and those banks have tons of rules and they are in countries that have, you know, financial regulations within internally. But there isn't anybody who sits on top of the market and says, you know, if you make an offer and agree to it, you have to pay back, pay up, for instance. So those things are all based on reputation, and that reputation is really articulated through masculinity. Now, of course, this kind of world blew up in a big way in 2008, and uh, there was a whole lot of gendered speculation around it, that it was, uh, there's a guy, what's his name, Coates, who uh, yes. <laughs> got briefly famous for arguing that it was just all testosterone gone wild. What do you make of these theories? Yeah, I mean... During the same period, you got all this writing in the papers, in the newspapers as well. So people like Christoph saying, oh, we, we need the, the, the layman sisters and then everything would be better. And yeah, the, I mean, Coates is a really interesting figure. So he did a whole bunch of studies in which he argued that you could correlate levels of risk taking with testosterone in a variety of ways. As we know, correlation is not the same as causation. He tend to blur those differences, as do many people, I think, who study testosterone in general. There's yeah, he worked with some neuroscientists, though, who were more careful about this, right? They were. 
they were more careful about it. But of course, the, the coverage was irresistible in the newspaper. And so this kind of idea that testosterone was the thing that caused the financial crisis really became, you know, was covered in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. What to me was so interesting about this is that this sort of argument that these that that masculinity isn't really that important to what's going on. And yet when things start to fall apart, they don't say it's crazy out there. They say it's testosterone that's doing it. So you can sort of see the emergence of the male body as being a certain kind of culprit. And that culp the reason the male body is the culprit, I think, is because it's really about social masculinity. It really relies on social masculinity to begin with. So when that fails, what they worry about is not a sort of asocial general problem, but the male body itself. It's just interesting that this analysis emerged in a crisis, and now 10 years later, uh, it's forgotten. Yes, exactly. So a, a sort of crude analysis, which is not entirely untrue, is that they're always looking for somebody to blame. I mean, the problem with markets is that they're not regulated and unregulated markets have a certain set of predictable crisis tendencies. But in that context, you're obviously not going to get, you know, a huge amount of coverage in the Wall Street Journal about sort of fundamental crisis tendencies that need serious regulation as their main thing. So one of the things they did was they looked towards this performance of out of control masculinity of that, like, that's where it is. If those guys would only act better, if they wouldn't be so reckless, if they wouldn't be so risky. And what's the problem? It's their hormones that are taking over their good sense. And, you know, with this kind of ironic notion that you should then turn to women whose hormones are comparatively stable, <laughs> which is just totally hysterical. I mean, no, that's a, there's a Freudian slip. I mean, obviously. Hubert Humphrey's doctor said that women shouldn't be president because of their subject to raging hormonal storms. So now we're locating the, uh, the stormy hormones in the men. Precisely. Yes. And actually, you know, I just said it was hysterical. Of course, the root of the word hysterical is the, the uterus getting loose in the woman and kind of wandering around, which has to do with her hormonal instability. So, so the notion that men are, are hysterical because they're too man, not too manly, but too male is I think absolutely it's just a it's just a really kind of wonderful flip on that and you did see a lot of discussion of this and yes it 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 has disappeared nuts make you nuts yes <laughs> 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 but where do people go with this what was the idea that you mentioned the Lehman sisters and Nick Kristoff of all people who is just so consistently wrong in so many ways suggests <laughs> that that uh, could be really helpful but uh, to have Lehman sisters but. What do you do with these men? Give them hormone therapy? I don't know what. The main solution that, that they kept bringing up was that if you brought in women, then it, that would make all the difference. And it is, you know, you were talking about, about Sandberg before, Cheryl Sandberg, and I do think there's a neat connection between the sort of lean-in feminism end of things and the testosterone is the problem critique of markets that in all of them, they imagine that a change of the personnel, um, a change of the gender of the personnel or of the sex of the personnel in the market will transform the markets and make it a kind of kinder, gentler place. But, uh, I, you know, I don't think there's really any evidence that women entering a masculinized structure act any way but appropriate within that structure. There is a kind of feminism that would embrace this critique, though, isn't there? That women are more caring and that male rationality is chilly and destructive and distant. And uh, we just need more of that feminine touch to have a more humane society. Yeah, totally. I mean, I guess if we go back to the beginning of the essay and the beginning of our conversation, where we were talking about how the sort of binary of public and private, the notion that some people do the, do the care work and some people do the other work and that you can separate those that is organized in the present period, mostly around gender or gender race. But I would argue that one of the things we see in these more elite arenas is that increasingly there are women being brought in to sort of perform, if you will, homo economicus. And they also have those binaries. They also have somebody else caring, taking care of the care work and the affective stuff someplace else. So that the so the capitalism is very reliant on this on on a kind of reproductive productive binary as a as a as a way that 
as a way that the system works as a whole, and gender then um, supports that and emerges within it, but one could imagine a context in which gender is pulled out and the fundamental split between reproductive and productive labor continues. And I think in certain elite contexts, that's what we're seeing. Capitalism needs that kind of poorly compensated or un uncompensated care work. Uh, we can commodify it to a certain degree, but uh, that's limited. So somebody's going to have to perform that role as long as we have this system driven by profit. Yes, absolutely. No, I think that, I think that, that it is not easy to imagine capitalism without gender, but it is possible. It is very hard to imagine that capitalism wouldn't look radically different if we didn't have any kind of split between productive and reproductive realms. And that is organized through race and gender in this, this historical period and very fundamentally through gender. And I think it would be interesting to, to imagine a world that didn't have that, but you'd have to undo the whole binary for capitalism to look quite different. Which takes us back to uh, the dependence of neoliberalism on a certain kind of traditional values. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, I think neoliberalism is, is very dependent on this. I mean, in fact, in some ways, capitalism is always dependent on this split. But neoliberalism, because of the insistence that homo economicus must be so incredibly internally rational, is even more dependent on, on this set of divisions. And if you're going to pare back the welfare state, that becomes even more intensely necessary. Oh, yes, absolutely. And this, of course, like somebody like Nancy Frazier has also done a lot of writing about this, right? This, this kind of ongoing set of crises that are produced by that, um, by the fact that there's less and less social support given to that realm of the home, but the welfare state is actually not, the, the welfare state is being eroded at the same time as um, the sort of traditional role of somebody whose job it is to care for, for the sort of basic work of dependent care. And so the combination of those two things puts us into a certain kind of crisis mode. She's, I think, a little more optimistic than I am that we're going to, that that crisis will be such a crisis that it'll be, that'll end things, <laughs> I don't know. Um, whereas to me, it looks like increasingly that's, that's simply racialized and classed. But it certainly doesn't look like a good, I think it's not an accident that that we are operating in a time where people are constantly talking about being stressed because the realm of reproduction is so intensely pressed in this historical time, and that's the structural issue. That's the endless series of articles in the Wall Street Journal about work-life balance. Yes, yes, which is impossible by definition in the, in the current period. That was Leslie Salzinger, a sociologist and an associate professor and vice chair of research in gender and women's studies at Berkeley. She's a contributor to the volume Mutant Neoliberalism, a collection of essays edited by William Callison and Zachary Manfredi, published by Fordham University Press. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. Some of Virchhoff's Tod, Economy is Dead, from the Slovenian band Leibach's 1992 album Capital. Next, South America, a region of political turmoil. Bolivia's President Evo Morales was driven out of office by the military and the police a few weeks ago in what some people weirdly refused to call a coup. Pushing in the other direction, there have been mass actions against neoliberalism in Chile, sometimes called its birthplace, and more recently, Colombia. A snooty column in Thursday's Financial Times called the Colombian events apparently unfocused protests over a host of grievances. 
protest that, as in Chile, are actually directed against the whole model of governance. What's going on? Here's Forrest Hilton in a return appearance in Behind the News to help answer that. Forrest teaches history and politics at the National University of Columbia in Medellin. Forrest Hilton. A lot of things to talk about here, but first, uh, Bolivia. What's your reading of what happened there? We have a lot of evidence about the preparation of the coup that began in many ways before October 20th when the elections took place, but really ramped up following the elections of October 20th with the allegations of fraud and uh, demands for new elections. And that eventually became a demand for Evo Morales' renunciation. By the time uh, the police revolted nationwide and the military, quote unquote, suggested that he step aside according to their constitutional function of providing advice and counsel to the president. Other popular organizations like the major trade union central, which is not the force that it once was, but nevertheless represents organized trade unionists, had recommended that Morales step aside because nobody could see any other way out by that point. And the uh, ombudsman's office had also recommended that Morales step aside because the situation was clearly spiraling out of control. And with the police in revolt, And the military unwilling, right, to go out and massacre people, certainly under Morales' government, they were not going to do that. When the police revolted and there was going to be no recourse to military force, the only thing the Morales government could count on was kind of his loyal supporters and leaders of social movements and to some degree uh, shock troops that they had been using. By the time the police decided they were going to let the opposition basically take over, it was clear that that there wasn't really any any way out because they were pursuing a maximalist program that had nothing to do with democracy or free and fair elections. It had to do with getting Morales out of power and then inflicting crippling blows to what remained of his political party by persecuting members of his political party, the movement towards socialism or MAS. That's how we had a coup that took place on November 10th. That's how we went from elections in which Evo Morales won just over 47 percent of the vote and took just over 10 percent more than his competitor, Carlos Mesa. And therefore, according to the Constitution, uh, Evo Morales would be president because he won more than 10 percent in the first round. What was disputed is the results of that first round. And as yet, Doug, there is no convincing evidence. There's even there's not even much in the way of circumstantial evidence to demonstrate that those elections were fraudulent. But I guess that's really not the point. Why did they want him out? I assume he was stepping on the wrong toes and they just had enough of it. So that's an interesting question. And I think we can make an analogy with Brazil during Lula's terms in office, including Dilma's term in office. A series of agreements or pacts were reached with the major fractions of capital. And so, in fact, business was booming. The PT, in order to govern, cut a series of agreements with fractions of capital that would later turn against them and overthrow them through coups. So something pretty similar happened in uh, Bolivia. There was significant right-wing fascist secessionist activity that includes paramilitary mobilization against Evo Morales and his forces pretty soon after he was elected and took power in 2006. And that then led to a massacre in 2008. In the wake of that massacre and purported coup attempt, Evo Morales, his vice president, Alvaro Garcia Lineda, and his political party, MAS, cut a series of deals with agribusiness and people connected to petroleum and gas exploitation and also kind of the financial sectors of capital. And all of these are located and concentrated in the eastern lowlands, particularly the capital of Santa Cruz. And Santa Cruz long benefited from state subsidies, first under military dictatorship, even before military dictatorship. They began these agro-industrial development programs, which continued under military dictatorships, and then continued under neoliberalism, whereby the eastern lowlands was systematically favored by the Bolivian state with subsidies and tax breaks and using, in fact, wealth from the Western Highlands to subsidize growth and development in the eastern lowlands. And that's where the kind of paramilitary fascist right wing organization has always been located since the early 
period of the Cold War in Bolivia, and that's where it remains. But Evo Morales and Mas were quite successful at cutting deals with the leading fractions and essentially buying off these opposition elements, let's say after 2010. And Morales actually took the Department of Santa Cruz in presidential elections in 2014. He might have even taken it in 2010. So they made really serious political inroads into these eastern lowland departments that had formerly been the basis for opposition to Morales and a kind of very hard paramilitary neoliberalism with a viciously racist edge in a country where around half of the population identifies as indigenous in one way or another. So anti-indigenous racism in a country like Bolivia is going to be very different from what it is in, say, Colombia or the United States or Canada, where indigenous peoples do not represent anything approaching half the population. So in that sense, it's a revanchist project coming out of the eastern lowlands to get rid of Evo Morales and also put these social movements, the coca growers movement, the indigenous highlands peasant movement, put these people back in their place, get them out of the government ministries and institutions. And, you know, the leaders among them, they're being uh, framed on, on trumped up charges of all sorts. And they're trying, the new coup regime is trying to prosecute Evo Morales on charges of terrorism and sedition. So the idea is that he won't be able to return to Bolivia, much less participate in the upcoming elections. Now, if we look at Brazil and uh, Bolivia together, both uh, the PT government in Brazil and Morales' government certainly did things to benefit the population, reduce poverty, mildly redistribution of stuff, but it was not radical revolutionary material. But still, that was too much for uh, the, the local ruling classes. That's the main point to make, is that a kind of neo-developmentalist social democracy with its redistributionist bent and its kind of successful clientelist infrastructure for winning elections and even expanding into, quote-unquote, enemy territory, that's what they couldn't tolerate. And there's an element of this that I still don't pretend to understand either in Brazil or in Bolivia, but there's an urban middle-class revanchism, and it's against new entrants into the urban middle class that were created by these nationalist developmentalist regimes that, that really did implement important aspects of any social democratic program, particularly in these kinds of countries, Bolivia and Brazil, around education, healthcare, housing to some degree, certainly labor law, subsidies to retired people, subsidies to uh, lactating mothers, a range of measures that obviously don't fit with the neoliberal paradigm of what social policy should look like. The point to stress is that not only the oligarchies, the reactionary, ultimately racist oligarchies in both the case of Brazil and Bolivia, they are not all powerful and they depend both on support from and coordination with outside elements in, in, in the sort of interstate system and collaboration from middle class elements, which may identify much more as centrist and really don't see themselves as part of any kind of far right wing project, but nevertheless have generally helped pave the way for the rise of a neo-fascist right in both Bolivia and Brazil. It's unthinkable that Bolsonaro or Añez would come to power without ultimately the support, whether active or tacit, of a whole range of urban middle class sectors who are, again, reacting against the kind of broadening of the middle class and its democratization in racial and ethnic terms under these kind of social democratic developmentalist regimes. How deeply involved was Washington, do you suppose? It's very hard to know because of what limited documentation or reporting has been done on the issue, right? We have these audios where different actors in Bolivian politics, some of them exiled in the United States, are coordinating with the usual suspects, which is to say Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, and Menendez in Florida. That comes as no surprise, right? That we certainly would expect. It's not clear, however, that Bolivians in country or the Bolivians abroad who were trying to bend the ear of these U.S. politicians. It's not clear they succeeded in doing so. It's not clear what their role was in these 
most recent events? Were any of them in the driver's seat? We really don't know. There's plenty that's worth investigating, and, and we have these audios. I guess it's a, a series of 16 audios that were released between alleged coup plotters and U.S. politicians. But if we want to explore the role of the United States based on the known facts, Carlos Sanchez Bersain was the Minister of Defense when the last round of massacres against unarmed civilians took place in Bolivia, which was in October 2003. And he and President Gonzalo Sanchez de Lozada were overthrown through a national popular uprising, pretty similar to what happened recently in Ecuador and somewhat similar to what is happening today in Chile. They fled to the United States. They're wanted for extradition charges in Bolivia. Sanchez de Lozada, as I understand it, it lives in Arlington, and Sanchez Bersain operates out of Miami, and he is a very public right-wing intellectual in Miami. He, he writes books, and he's on the radio in Miami all the time. He's really waging, has been waging an ideological crusade against 21st century socialism, i.e. neo-developmentalist social democracy. So Sanchez Bersain managed to get one of his fichas, or pawns, appointed as the new minister of communications in Bolivia. And one of the first things she did was threaten foreign journalists and journalists in general with sedition charges if they didn't report things the way that she wanted them to, because that was something that went wrong for them in October 2003, and they wanted to make sure that it didn't happen again. Now, an Argentine delegation of human rights observers arrived, I think it was last night, in Santa Cruz first, where they were harassed by apparently plainclothes policemen who referred to them as Argentine commies, as faggots, and so forth. And then they were apprehended by the Bolivian police and detained for a period of time, subject to hostile questioning, and then finally released uh, to go to La Paz. And they've been meeting with people who experience violence directly and who have testimony to give. And it's all extremely dramatic stuff in terms of disappeared people, people who were tortured, people who were held in detention or being held in detention without charges. Now, this is something that the Bolivian government has been at pains to, to keep from coming to light. So in that respect, it's not surprising that this Argentine human rights delegation would receive this kind of harassment because they're really trying to keep a lid on things. But the minister of government threatened this delegation and he said, we're watching you and any kind of terrorism, you'll be dealing with the Bolivian police. Now, these are people who are lawyers and members of prominent human rights organizations in Argentina who have come on a, a very obviously legitimate human rights mission to meet with survivors and witnesses. And this is the treatment that they have received. On the other hand, Luis Fernando Camacho, who, is front, who was the leader of the kind of paramilitary fascist right-wing opposition that ultimately succeeded in channeling the more centrist urban middle class opposition into uh, a direction of, of a coup that, that overthrew Evo Morales. Luis Fernando Camacho has a political godfather. Luis Fernando Camacho was nobody up until quite recently, and he's only been in charge of the Santa Cruz Civic Committee since January of this year. Now, his political godfather lives in Argentina. He is a former head of the Santa Cruz Civic Committee who has a very long history and trajectory of fascist uh, politics in, in the lowlands in Bolivia and is exiled in Argentina because he's wanted for terrorism charges in Bolivia. And that's Luis Fernando Camacho's political godfather. Therefore, a week before the coup took place, Camacho asked for asylum in Argentina in the event that the coup failed. So we have a clear connection with Argentina. And as I said, the, the government of Macri was very quick to legitimate the new coup government. On the other hand, Luis Fernando Camacho has said that at every point in sort of planning and plotting the coup, he was in touch with Ernesto Araujo, who is the foreign minister in Brazil. And Camacho said that because of President Bolsonaro's travel plans, he narrowly missed having a meeting with Bolsonaro himself. So there's clear support from the Brazilian foreign ministry, and one presumes that there was communication and coordination between the Brazilian military and the Bolivian military on this. We can 
safely say that whatever the role of the United States or whatever the role of Bolivians within the United States in precipitating this coup, we also have to look at the role of Bolivia's immediate neighbors. And both President Macri and President Bolsonaro are terrified of anything like Chile breaking out. But with the victory of Fernandez in Argentina, it seems that's quite unlikely since he's going to reverse direction and go back to a much more kind of social liberalism. That's kind of how I think we can see uh, the Bolivian coup in relationship to broader hemispheric trends at the moment. Uh, Obviously, the better part of the South American continent right now is in some state of upheaval or another. And in relatively rapid succession, we have seen the military in the streets in Ecuador, Chile, Bolivia, and now Colombia. I'm speaking with the Medellin-based historian and political scientist Forrest Hilton. Okay, so you mentioned Chile several times. Let's talk about that. And uh, some of that is spreading into uh, the country where you are, right, Colombia? It's really interesting because it's hard to say how much of it is triggered by what's happening in Chile or what the relationship is exactly between what's happening in Colombia now and what's happening in Chile. But I saw a very interesting interview with Dilma Rousseff, the former president of Brazil, in which she said the explosion in Chile and the clear desire on the part of of a majority of Chileans to find a different political and economic model than the neoliberal one that has been imposed on them for about the last 30 years, because actually Pinochet had to go with Keynesianism several times um, and couldn't implement neoliberalism right off the bat as he had wanted to. So Chileans have dealt with about 30 years of neoliberalism and they're not having any more of it or they're trying to put an end to it. And what Dilma Rousseff said was that Chile is the model for the Brazilian right. And without Chile as their referent, they're somewhat rudderless. They're somewhat lost. And I think that partly helps explain the sort of savagely fascist direction in which these right wing currents seem to be seem to be moving now. And at the same time, of course, other countries begin to ask, when does this happen here? When are we going to wake up the way that the Chileans have? And when are we going to manifest ourselves on a massive scale of the way that Chileans have? To some degree, that just happened in Ecuador. So it's not so much of a question in Ecuador, but it is a question in Brazil. And to the degree that Lula is now free and organizing mass rallies all throughout Brazil to talk about what is to be done and what is on the agenda for 2020, it's pretty unlikely that we'll see anything like what we've seen in Chile, precisely because Lula exercises a kind of leadership that nobody can exercise in Chile. So there's one really major contrast between those two situations. But certainly, there's been a lot of talk in Brazil about a return to dictatorship and the use of the military to quell any potential protest along Chilean lines. And on the other hand, Lula has been saying Brazil ought to follow the Chilean example of getting out into the streets and protesting government policy in 2020. Meanwhile, here in Colombia, that's exactly what has happened or begun to happen. And it began, I guess, with the national general strike of November 21st, which involved almost half a million in Bogota, Medellin and Bucaramanga alone. So that gives you some sense of how massive it was because the demonstrations and strikes were general. In addition to Bogotá, Medellín, and Bucaramanga, we had a range of cities on the coast like Cartagena, Santa Marta, Barranquilla, and then cities like Cali, Pasto, Popayán in the southwest, Villa Vicencio in the eastern lowlands. And so really it was nationwide and it was quite generalized. What they're protesting against in the Colombian case is a package of neoliberal reforms similar to the package of neoliberal reforms recently introduced in uh, Brazil. And so that has really united a range of sectors, beginning with the student movement, which was already mobilized and which had mobilized in 2018 in a three-month-long strike, which ended successfully with a commitment on the part of the Colombian government to offer $1.4 billion more in funding for public higher education. 
part of the problem that brought people into the streets, beginning with students in late September, was the unwillingness or inability of the Colombian government to comply with the agreements that it signed. So students started protesting in late September, but the Colombian government also has an agreement with public school teachers, which it has not upheld. It has an agreement with a range of rural sectors and the indigenous movement that it has not upheld. And then, of course, there are also the peace agreements between the FARC and the Colombian government that were signed in November 2016 that have not been upheld. So all of the sectors uh, that have a signed agreement with the government are mobilizing on behalf of implementation of that agreement. But the trade unions are also mobilized, and, and really it's a, it's a very broad range of social movements and sectors that are mobilized at this point. I don't think I've ever seen all of these sectors mobilized simultaneously in this way, and that's perhaps one of the things that's notable about it. It's in all the cities throughout the country, but it was also in the countryside, and it's something that goes far beyond just one set of sectoral demands or another. And I think that's what's most impressive about it. So it seems to be the largest mobilization of this type in Colombia since 1977. And of course, the reaction of the government has been so far violent repression, but it has now had to enter into negotiations with the leaders of the strike because the strike didn't end on November 21st, but has continued in the days thereafter. And on November 21st, as the day was ending and police violence began to spiral out of control, people came out spontaneously into the streets banging pots and pans in what's known as casarolazos, right? And often those casarolazos are actually sort of right-wing protests, right-wing urban middle-class protests. In this case, they were very much in support of uh, protesters and demonstrators and against an excess of, of police violence. And these casarolazos immediately spread all throughout the working class neighborhoods of the city. And this was true in Medellin. This was true in Bogota. This was true in Bucaramanga. So this was an, a genuinely new element of spontaneous protest that hadn't been planned as part of the strike. Afro-Colombians are mobilized. The gay, lesbian and trans community and bisexual community is mobilized. Indigenous Colombians have actually been mobilized before the general strike, but they have contributed significantly to its mobilization, and they're also in charge of providing safety and security for marches in Medellin and Bogota. So even though they're a small percentage of the population, it's important to highlight the importance of indigenous participation in these marches, because that's part of how they break out of the, the kind of state of siege that they're under in their own region and allows for some unity between urban and, and rural demands. We're just about out of time, but one always likes to end this sort of interview with a grand generalization and a forward look. It seems rather difficult in this case. Uh, everything seems to be contradictory and very much in flux. Uh, how would you look at this uh, in, from a, a longer perspective? As much as one would wish for some sort of resolution this is going to stay in flux, certainly through the end of this year and into next year. And it will be interesting to see how things evolve in each case and then in relationship to one another. Because, as I said, I've never seen this kind of simultaneity, either within Colombia or within the continent of South America more broadly. So it seems like there is some kind of reverberation effect that's very difficult to understand that's going on between the different countries in South America and I expect that will continue into 2020 as well. And obviously, it's unknown what those reverberations look like or, or how they play out in 2020. But given that this kind of revanchist and restorationist right, represented by Bolsonaro, represented by Añez and Luis Fernando Camacho in Bolivia, uh, represented, I guess, to some degree by Piñera in Chile, and certainly represented by Ivan Duque uh, in Colombia, all they have to offer is kind of neoliberalism reloaded and, and military and police repression sort of scaled up and, and more high tech. And there is no other program on offer. So this is neoliberalism and it's necrotic or it's decadent phase, very different from the kind of earlier phase where there's all kinds of illusory promises and, and possibilities for kind of ideological legitimation. We're in a moment in which ideological legitimacy has just vanished completely. And so... You know, it remains to be seen, I guess, how organized popular forces 
uh, will be going forward in 2020. But certainly, it's hard not to be impressed by what's happened in Chile and the extent to which people have been able to maintain a state of insurrection in rejecting the neoliberal model as a whole. And I think it's safe to say that that will continue to inspire everybody else in South America right now fighting to either end the neoliberal status quo or at least shift it somewhat in a progressive direction, which would be sort of the case of Colombia. That was Forrest Hilton, who teaches history and politics at the National University of Colombia in Medellin. You can find his coverage of these events on the Jacobin and London Review of Books websites. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go with this, Some of Dysfunctional Family by Murphy's Law. Till next week, bye.